Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Uh, you'd think 10 years. Mm-hmm. 10 years. Um, <laughs> uh, if only I had a car horn here. Doesn't, yeah. he, doesn't he blow a car horn at some point? I feel like he's, yeah. but I, I feel like he's holding a joint. It's been a long time since I've seen yeah. Gross Point Blank, which is what that reference is. Yeah. Um, I feel like he's holding a joint and he says, 10 years, 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And maybe he does like honk the honk the horn. Uh, I can't remember. But um, so 10 years. Mm-hmm. I'm still a mumble mouth. <laughs> you know what, though? Okay. So we posted our uh, our very first episode. Yeah. I was going to wait. <coughs> uh, maybe we should have saved this for the like up, like top of the show thing for the <laughs> for the main oh, episode. That's fine. But I'm I sure. did go. But yeah, yeah. we posted on the website our first ever episode i went back and listened to the whole thing it took me all day really yes it took me all day um god bless you and uh in some ways it was like yeah uh, cringe inducing and in other ways i was like oh not as bad as i as i thought yeah. like i feel like when we're talking about movies like we're not, we, i don't think we're going as in depth obviously it's a 43 minute episode sure but just not, not going as in depth as we would now but i don't feel like i really embarrassed myself talking about movies right where i embarrassed myself is trying to be funny that's oh, it was, it's it's unlistenable that was the part that i kept having to like i can't listen i'm gonna listen to some i gotta chill out with some asmr videos for a little bit before mm-hmm. i can i can get back into into this this madness but yes um but yeah i did notice that uh, i i still mumble I, I like i don't know why i haven't improved in that sense i think you have i think really? uh, i think both of us have uh, acquired a, a more distinct and uh, clear voice, um, I, and that's the thing is I, I I never thought of you as a as a mumble uh, a mumble mouth. Uh, there are times when you will talk kind of fast. I think I talk fast, and it makes me maybe mumble is the wrong word because mumble imply like has a volume contingent to it. I'm mm-hmm. more of like a mush mouth. You know who I'm like in this way and this way only. Sean Spicer. Okay. Have you have you seen that GQ video? I uh, know of like it was like the glossary of Sean Spicer, and it's just like clips of him, and then like subtitles of like trying to phonetically spell what whatever word he's saying, <laughs> like all, otherwise instead of otherwise oh, or wow. or Vroder fraud. <laughs> Vroder fraud. Vroder. Oh, if you gosh. watch him, he like because he's a he's a fast talker like I yeah. am, and he stumbles over his words and he says things that aren't words a lot of the time oh, that's uh, unfortunate. but you should watch that gq video it's very funny uh, i'm trying to stay away from that stuff right now I, I don't, I, to me that's not like politics it's just like it's funny this guy says stuff like otherwise but then i just feel bad <laughs> i feel bad for him you know um, um yeah. i'm not gonna spend much time feeling bad for him right see and in that and in that sense that's where politics comes in i guess you're right um i was um, yeah. i did i did go to this thing that uh ucla has called uh, a dinner for 12 strangers oh. where i don't know how i got on this list maybe everybody uh, now, gets on the list at the end of the night were there still 12 of you oh everything about <laughs> it just reeks of murder mystery <laughs> yeah, doesn't it for sure yeah um and so so I was really excited to go and talk to people from different uh, majors, different departments. Some were undergrads, some were alumni, uh, some were grad students. Very interesting. Um, so first, first thing, I got the time wrong. So I was two hours late. So I walk in. It's a long dinner. 
Yeah. I, you I, walk I, in and 11 people are like, <laughs> where have you been? <laughs> pretty much. Yes. And, and I, it's one of those things where I, I was excited that my, uh, that my perception was so fast. I walked in, everyone was at the table and they all look at me and I immediately see it's a bunch of empty plates in front of them, but there's crumbs on them. Oh shit. How late am I? And, uh, and so I said, when I said, did this start already? And he goes, yeah, uh, six o'clock. I was like, six o'clock. It was like eight Oh three. Yeah. And I said, Oh my gosh, I feel so terrible. He goes, no, no, it's fine. He goes, here's a, you know, here's your name tag. And I was like, well, I feel like I've, I don't have anything to say because you guys have already gotten to know more about me now than by anything I have to say. But, but anyway. now you're the center of attention. They've been talking to just themselves for two hours and now right. all eyes are going to be on you, right? Yeah. Cause you're the new thing that just walked into the room. Yeah. And not oh, only am I, not only am I the new thing, I'm the big thing cause I'm awesome and I'm, <laughs> and I'm a talker and I'm a, uh, a social butterfly, David. And so things turned to politics. I didn't, but things turned that way. And we, you know, I said what I am and things stayed very civil. Uh, things then turned to abortion, which apparently I'm going to a conversation I'm going to have constantly. Um, but it's a, it was a very civil, very interesting conversation. Everybody heard each other out. It was great. That's good. Um, and afterwards the host who's an alum, uh, an alumnus and said, uh, and he's hosted a few of these and he goes, well, he goes, I got to say that was the deepest conversation we've ever had at one of these. And I was like, yeah, you're fucking a right. <laughs> That's what happens when you, when you bring Tyler Smith and even, you know what you guys even had a two hour head start uh-huh. and I still showed up and blew the roof off the place. You let them get the, all the bullshit out of the way. Exactly. They were the opening act. You were the main event. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, politics, it's just going to come up. Like, have you, have you heard the, um, high school teachers saying like the, you know, maybe the upside to the, the silver lining to the Trump presidency is that teenagers are excited to talk about politics now. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, yeah, that's, that's good. It's here's it's, the downside. Yeah. Teenagers are, are talking, are talking politics. That's no good. Um, but anyway, so all right, we should talk about movies absolutely david it's the other show where we do the big tangents right we're supposed right. to do the little tangents here okay so i watched a movie uh from 1985 um called desert hearts to an american independent uh film directed by a woman named donna deitch or donna deitch i'm not mm-hmm. sure how you say her last name um takes it ta- it takes place in 1959 although it doesn't really like rub that in very mm-hmm. much i kind of like kept forgetting that it was supposed to be a period piece but basically a based on like weird 1959 customs and 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 rules a woman a sort of intellectual new york professor woman has come to reno and has to stay there for a few weeks to get a divorce mm-hmm. i don't okay. know so it takes place in reno and basically there's because this is a custom that people have to like live in like established like three weeks or whatever residency in Reno to get divorces or something. I didn't understand the whole backstory because of that. There's essentially a ranch. It's like a vacation, like long-term vacation ranch. that this, this woman runs that's all women who are getting divorces. 
Oh, so it's okay. an entire like house and ranch where people just like women come and like hang out, maybe go into town and gamble or whatever. But it's just like three weeks because they need a place to stay while yeah. their divorce, their quickie Nevada divorce is uh, is being finalized. That's fun. Um, it is an inter- yeah, it's definitely an interesting uh, setting. But what the movie uh, really is, it's less about that and more. It's a obviously taboo because of the time period uh lesbian romance oh okay um the woman who owns the ranch has a an adult daughter who lives in a another sort of cottage on the property and so this um very prim and sophisticated intellectual button down uh woman from new york uh finds herself all uh all a flutter um with feelings she doesn't understand yeah um for this young woman who is um you know boldly uh, i don't know if you would say i don't know if you'd use the term out for someone in 1959 but she is right she is um not shy about the fact that she uh likes women and sleeps with women sure um and so that's a big shock to this uh proper uh proper lady mm. uh and so it's uh um, I, I feel like the way I'm describing it, I'm like having fun with it and making it sound a little cornier than it is. It's actually uh, a really terrific and really touching. When was it uh, made? Movie 1985. 85. Okay. Um, and um, uh, this uh, the director has gone on to a successful career in television, but not many more movies. So we'll be talking about her in an upcoming uh, uh, main canon episode. Um, oh yes, indeed, indeed. Um, not this week's, but um, I was like, what the hell are you talking about profile? It's, it's a short episode. What are you talking <laughs> yeah. about? Um, okay. I got it. Uh, but, uh, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a very strong little, little indie with a great sense of, now I watched it on a DVD. Um, I, 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 I want to say that, um, there's a new, um, restoration or at least a new remastering that's going to, uh, result in a, in a Blu-ray release because I, w- I wanted to watch it because uh, I can't remember who um, UCLA or someone was screening oh, okay. it, uh, screening the restoration. And I wasn't able to make it to that. And I was like, well, I can find this DVD. So I watched the DVD um, and it's a, uh, it has a really terrific sense of uh, texture. It's a, um, I'm not just saying this because it does eventually turn erotic, but it is a sensual, or sensuous movie. I'm not sure how you would, I never, I'm never sure which one to, to use Sensu- like sensual specifically refers to, or has a more specifically sexual connotation. Okay. And I think sensuous just means it like taps into the senses. Mm. Uh, and this movie is both. So I guess I don't have to really worry about using the right term because this movie is, is both. You know, here's the thing. Uh, in a situation like that, I will probably only ever use sensual because because I'm not sure how to use the other one. Mm-hmm. Not unlike instinctive and instinctual. Instinctual never sounds right to me, so I will always say instinctive. You instinctively say instinctive. No, I've put a lot of thought <laughs> into it. Um, um, anyway, uh, yeah, it's called Desert Hearts, and, and I, uh, I, my understanding is that it's going to be... I feel like I should know this. Um the uh that the, there is a, a release coming in fact i might have a press release in my email about it so oh, um how about you uh go on to your movie okay desert hearts very good so this was a movie that i uh actually saw uh 
two weeks ago, but I forgot to include it in last week's uh, movie journal, and that is Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, Notre Dame, pardon me. And uh, <clears throat> have you seen this? Have you seen? Uh, have uh, you seen this? Have you heard about this? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, Mister Leno. Um, <laughs> yeah, I saw. I know what I saw it on VHS. Okay, this is uh, James Woods as Hades. No, that's Hercules. That's Hercules. Maybe the- I didn't see this one. If I'm thinking of Hercules. I honestly don't remember if I saw this one. I think this one came out a year before Hercules. Um, yeah, I knew as yeah. soon as I said Hades, I was like, well, that's not right. Right. Um, yeah, no, this is when Quasimodo fights Captain Hook. Shit, wait, hang on, that's not right. Um, yeah, it's pretty great in a lot of ways. It is definitely dark, tonally. I mean, it is... There's some rough stuff going on. Uh, voice actors include Demi Moore, um... Kevin Klein, Tom Holtz, and Tony J, who is an actor that whose name most people probably don't know, but you've heard his voice. He has he's known primarily for his voice. It's this very deep British voice, and he plays uh Frollo. And that character in this film, it is one of the most complex villains. Um that Disney has ever produced. And obviously it doesn't come from Disney. It comes from Victor Hugo, but this idea of this very pious man who everything he does, everything he says is a function of his, his, uh, faith, but more specifically his, uh, I'd say very pharisaical, uh, faith. And it's all rooted in judgment. He hates, he's very prejudiced. He hates gypsies. Okay. Is that what pharisaical, you know, or the Pharisees, but what, what specifically do you mean when you say a pharisaical uh, More, more, uh, emphasis on rules and legalism and, okay. uh, uh, an assumed sense of superiority as a result. Oh, okay. okay. Um, <clears throat> and so it's like a, like a Mike Pence type. Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Um, Based on, I don't know, I, I, frankly, I've long since stopped judging uh, any politician based on what they claim from a religious standpoint, sure. Democrat or Republican. Like, I don't even, I don't even know. I don't even care because there's the thing. They all say what they're supposed to say. Some of them yeah. might believe it. Some of them might not. How long into the future do you think it will be before America would elect an openly atheist president. I think probably not that long officially. You think so? Um, I mean, honestly, if you get, I know it seems unlikely that the Republicans would ever nominate someone, but we came pretty close this time around. There was a, you know, Trump might have, uh, thrown out a few platitudes, but to my knowledge, nobody actually believed him. But that's 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 different than than someone openly saying I don't believe in God, which I think causes huge portions of America, even those who don't consider themselves that religious, right. to recoil. I suppose so. Uh, I do think that ultimately it's it's going to come down. Politics will will begin to uh, supplant any other, and the possibility of winning will supplant anything, anything else. So if we, if there was ever, uh, if there were ever a Republican who is the best speaker and has certain, if things keep going the way they're going, uh, uh, in the Republican route, um, if, if they're a good speaker, if they have populist values and 
if they can win, then honestly, I think the Republicans don't care anymore. Um, hmm. Definitely, I, I definitely think that on uh, on the on the Democrat side, I think you would find uh, an atheist as far as a nomination. I wonder if that's true, and here's why. Okay, because I think um, uh, this is just speculation, but I think one of the and there are a lot of factors. One of the main reasons um, Hillary Clinton didn't win was an inability to turn out. The uh, a, a large minority vote. Sure. That I think a lot of minorities stayed home. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the difference between, or a difference between white liberals and minority liberals sure. is that there's still a lot of faith among your uh, black and Latino Americans. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I, I don't know that an atheist... Democrat would have any more luck than Hillary Clinton had, which is, which obviously she came close. She won the popular vote. Right. But, um, uh, I, I still think, um, that's, that's the fascinating thing to me is that I think in some ways the shifting demographics in, in America, we're talking about, uh, by the year 2050, um, fewer than half of Americans are going to be, uh, white. That's the, that's the, the projection that I read uh, a while ago. Um, in some ways that I think is leaning to makes the country lean, uh, left politically, but it also means, um, a possibly a more religious populace. Yeah. I mean, when it comes right down to it, you know, prop eight passed in California and as far as I can tell, it wasn't because of all the, all the, uh, hard right conservatives, you know, uh, hard right white conservatives. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's been, and I, I I'm, I'm going to try and say this with, with no judgment. I voted against prop eight, but like, uh, the vast majority of like the African American community, even, even if it uh, was left leaning voted in favor of prop eight. And so it's a very, it is very interesting to see that, uh, yeah. that juxtaposition, not juxtaposition that, um, seeming contradiction uh, yeah. in that party. It was but. definitely that mixed with a huge influx of Mormon money from Utah. Right. I don't know if you, yes. there's a documentary about that. Um, I think it's, it's just called eight, eight right? Eight, yeah, yeah. The Mormon proposition. I think yes. it's the, technically the full name. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Um, yeah. Well, and so, okay, I will use this to get back into Hunchback of Notre Dame because which this is what Disney wants, by the way, is for any discussion of Hunchback of Notre sure. Dame to talk about racial politics. Well, frankly, uh, <laughs> Clearly, they didn't want us. They didn't want people talking about the big aspects of Hunchback of Notre Dame because the comic relief is so shoehorned in. It is so forced. It's it's uh, Quasimodo's three gargoyle buddies, voiced by among others Jason Alexander, and it's so. God bless them. They're trying, but man, you could remove that stuff and the film would be fine. It's, it is not, it's not like it's Aladdin where it's just, it's blended into the larger story. Uh, it clearly is a Disney executive who said, this is way too dark and we're dealing with religious issues that, you know, the villains song, you know, every villain usually gets one song and this one is called hellfire and it is all about, this uh, about Frollo talking about how he hates this gypsy woman, but he secretly yearns for her, but he can't let himself have her. Instead, no one will have her. The last mm-hmm. lyric is she will burn. And there's, and the imagery is very, you know, very hellish, obviously. And then when Frollo eventually does die, uh, he falls from, 
uh, Notre Dame and he's holding on to this gargoyle and there's like fire down below. And there comes this moment when the gargoyle is starting to come loose and it's the face of the gargoyle starts to like move and like smile and like look at him and like mock him as a, as then he falls into this fire and like that's rough stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm shocked that Disney included any of that anyway. But clearly they felt like, oh shoot, we could have tried to soften that up, but we didn't. We kept it really, really uh, disturbing yeah. and dark. Uh, but we'll try and have these characters over here uh, make things better. But um, it is it's definitely an underrated disney film of the 90s it you know it was a year after po- the big four were obviously little mermaid beauty and the beast aladdin and lion king then after that was pocahontas which was fairly popular but and that then, one i've definitely never seen it's good um i don't love it i don't hate it but uh but yeah there's a bunch from that i've definitely never seen pocahontas i seem to have seen hercules because i remembered it right and Mulan and Hunchback, I feel like I saw, but I couldn't really tell you anything about them. I only saw Mulan recently, and uh, Boo Hiss, no thank oh, really? you. Um, and then there's Tarzan, which is actually pretty good. I don't think I saw that. Um, no, I, I didn't see that one. Yeah, I, it's, there was a time when my my mom and I would see like the Disney movies because it's a thing that she enjoyed, and I would go with her. No, I saw Treasure Planet. I like that I one. I saw Atlantis. Atlantis. I, I don't think I like Treasure Planet. But I remember liking Atlantis. Yeah, I think I did too. And then, then there was a Home on the Range, which I saw with I my nephew. He got bored, and we went out to the arcade. <laughs> but um, oh, have you seen? Can we talk about the movie theaters with playgrounds in them? Have you heard about that? That is that sounds like a top of the show discussion. All right, let's uh, let's uh, let's uh, yeah, we'll talk okay. about it in the main episode. A little yeah. tease yeah. for the main episode uh, uh, coming on Thursday. Uh, what when did we do it no this is thursday coming on monday yeah um anyway all right this is my turn mm-hmm. all right speaking of political issues uh although this one shouldn't be is an environmental issue i watched the documentary called antarctica ice and sky uh it's from the guy who directed uh march of the penguins okay uh and this follows a now i've already forgotten his name um it's specifically about it's about Antarctica, but it's about one man in particular who is uh, a, a glaciologist um, in who has uh, dedicated his life to Antarctica and is one of the earliest people because he's been going there. He's spent he's made twenty two trips to he's in his eighties made twenty two trips to Antarctica in his life like you know expeditions. Um, and has spent a total of about 10 years of his life living in Antarctica, which is, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, something. Um, but he's one of the first scientists to have discovered, um, uh, climate change essentially. Okay. Um, and it came with, uh, discovering that he could, that, that ice at different levels can be dated, you know, they can take these huge cylinders and they've gone at this point, they've gone thousands of thousands of feet into the ice to take cylinders. And so you're getting air samples and you can date like how old they are. Oh, neat. And he was, um, the, the first clue they got was when he realized in like the 1970s that he could date every single nuclear test or atomic bomb use based on ice in Antarctica, which is like the first clue that like, Oh, something that, like something that happened in, you know, Hiroshima yeah. or in like Bikini Atoll or whatever, like had an effect on the air and the water 
at the you know bottom of the planet and that was like the first clue to unlocking like oh this stuff really like what we put into the air um affects the whole planet um and that is kind of what led to uh that was one of the early steps of of discovering what like um uh, greenhouse gases were doing and stuff like that um but what's great about the movie is it has a lot it has a lot of modern day photography of antarctica that's beautiful but um this guy on many of his trips not all of them but seemed a lot of these expeditions were documented with film cameras okay. and so um there's not a lot of sound i think what sound there is might be like adr that was you know and foley and stuff that was mm-hmm. created for the movie but there's a ton of footage of antarctic antarctic expeditions from the 50s through the modern day um and it's really fascinating uh and so um it's you know climate change documentaries tend to scare me like i'm i'm hesitant to watch them because i uh-huh. do have this feeling like it's too late and like our quality of life as humans is going to continue to get worse over my lifetime and i'm uh terrified about um what that's going to mean for me and that's coming from someone who is comfortable you know there are people in parts of the world you know there's what it's like the there are island nations that are literally like disappearing because losing like two feet of shoreline you know a year or something that might be an exaggeration but anyway it's still there's they're disappearing we're along a fault line we'll get ours don't worry oh yeah (laughs) we'll definitely have our own uh yeah um but there's also a lot of really um uh heartening stuff the movie's uh only 80 something minutes long uh, which is always good um and one of the things that i loved about it was one of the earliest and also southernmost Mo, uh, uh, stations, mm-hmm. um, you know, scientific outposts and stations in Antarctica, um, meaning the one that it's in the absolutely coldest, harshest weather, um, was established by the Soviets. And in the 1980s, at the height of the Cold War, there was a team. This guy's French, by the way. I should have said that. Um, there was a team of American, French, and Soviet scientists living and working there's footage of them like drinking together and working together like at the height of the cold war and it basically like the guy says uh science trumps politics is what he says i don't know if that's true but that gave him hope i guess uh and it gave me hope in watching it doesn't everything about that just imply isn't that just the beginning of a sci-fi horror movie (laughs) just (laughs) hey we're all you know we put all these things aside uh yeah that's true up until the paranoia kicks in and then they're gonna go after each other and yeah that's a movie i want to see but it's uh yeah Antarctica, Ice and Sky is the name of the movie. I wish it had a more memorable name, especially especially since like just last year there was Antarctica, A Year on Ice. Yeah, um, I like the I like Ice and Sky. That sounds really profound. Yeah, uh, but it, yeah, it's it's really lovely. The DVD is weird because it's I, I think there are it's a French movie, but the version I watched had narration, which is in the voice of the 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 explorer the per, or the the scientist rather the person the movie's about but i think it was it was read in english by someone else mm-hmm. but then so it made me think like okay i don't need to turn the subtitles on like all the narrations in right. english but then occasionally there'd be clips of him back in france appearing on like talk shows and stuff and that you know advocating um you know for action against climate change that weren't subtitled at all um they're brief and i was able to just like ah, i've 
I, I think I got what like yeah. context clues. I think I understand what he's saying, but it's a, uh, I don't understand the DVD setting. It's, it seems to be uh poor uh, DVD construction. It'd be funny if, uh, if what he is saying is essentially, it's not that big of a deal. Really. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> just at odds with everything. He, he just, he's just like Kruger, like, I'm not too worried about it. Um, <laughs> All right. Hey David, uh, real quick. Okay. How many oceans are there in this, on this, on this, uh, big blue marble? There's four, right? Huh? Yeah. That's what I thought. Okay, in fact, there, that's how, on. that's how it was for a long time. Oh, is this the like Pluto one. thing? Oh, so this is the opposite of Pluto. Yeah. They, okay, so I know okay. the Atlantic, Pacific, Indian, and Arctic. There you go. There's another one? There is now another one. What's it called? The Southern Ocean. Because the Arctic Ocean is up north. The oh, Southern Ocean is uh, down south. I see. That's, uh, I just found that out like a week ago. And I did not believe it. And I thought, this seems like something that, not unlike the Pluto, we know the Pluto thing. Yeah. But yeah, that's this seems we yeah this that's been, a huge percentage of oceans. <laughs> yeah, there should have been a bigger press release. I think. I think so. We should we should have known about this. Yeah, deeply off putting. Okay, so uh, the other day Jen and I were uh, babysitting for uh, uh, some friends of ours, uh, so their children were over at our place, and it was uh, delightful. That's fun. That's fun. And uh, we watched uh, Kung Fu Panda. Oh, what a good movie! What a good movie, David. The the one complaint that I might have is just the the all star casting, which is the thing that I tend not to like that much oh, right, with sure. animated films. Who do but, we got here? We got obviously Jack Black, Dustin Hoffman, Angelina Jolie, Seth Rogen, yeah. Ian McShane. Yeah, I believe uh, there's a Jackie Chan in there. Oh, sure, okay. Um, and uh, yeah, it's weird. like <clears throat> I don't know, uh, Ian McShane like. He he can do voice work all day long. He's right. got a great and voice Jack Black work. does good, really good stuff. Um, all everybody does fine. I don't I don't think I like Seth Rogen in that part. But um, but at the same time, it's uh, but that's a small that's a small complaint, especially because because um, they everybody is cast pretty well. Ian McShane does do a really great job, and there there's a, a moment when. And I'm a sucker for the for the humor of the film. Like Poe, the uh, the Kung mm-hmm. Fu Panda, his whole thing. Like anytime he goes up the stairs and is just exhausted and like out of breath, I always laugh. Uh-huh. Especially when he's supposed to be heroic. You know, there's a, a scene where Ian McShane's character is, is basically about to kill Dustin Hoffman, and then suddenly uh, Poe appears and the camera whips over to him and he's just like doubled over, like with his hand up, like saying like, just give me a second here. Uh-huh. Um, and then, uh, and Ian McShane's character says, who are you? And he goes, buddy, I'm the dragon warrior. <laughs> just like, and I'm saying like, <laughs> but just like, it's, it's a really good read of the line, but I will also say that, Man, the action in that movie is good. Yeah. It's it to me it rivals The Incredibles as far as or almost any live action action film. Uh you know, when the when the Furious 5 are fighting uh the main villain, mm-hmm. everything is just so coordinated and and the feels strange to say the camera, but where the camera moves and and how it moves, uh it's just it's so lively and invigorating and i haven't seen either of the other two kung fu pandas i hear they're pretty good yeah um but i really 
I really love this movie and, and I know that for a long time and maybe even still, I know that DreamWorks animation was seen as significantly uh, inferior to Pixar. And I'd say that by and large, that's true. But Kung Fu Panda hmm. is, is pretty great. And so uh, listeners, if you've not seen it, check it out. It is uh, a, a lot of fun. Um, I saw that movie. There was a period of my life in the spring and summer of 2008 where I was, uh, going to Pasadena once a week, every Saturday. Um, because my girlfriend at the time was taking a, a, a course, a Saturday mm-hmm. course at the community college. We only had one car. So it became a thing. Like I would drive her out to the, to the thing and there's a th- two or $3 like yeah. second run theater right is it by still the, there. It is still there. I saw mm-hmm. allied there. Um, just, uh, in, uh, January, I guess. Um, and, um, yeah, so I can I, I can name like I can think of all the movies. I guess it was was it it must have been two thousand. It was probably a full year, like two thousand seven into two thousand eight, because I saw I know I yeah. saw Knocked Up there, and mm-hmm. I saw Once, mm-hmm. and I saw Iron Man, and I saw Kung Fu Panda. Right. Um, I'm trying to remember what else I saw, but uh, uh, a bunch of stuff. Uh, Three Ten to Yuma. Nice. Saw that. Yeah. Um, so the, yeah, there was a, uh, I remember distinctly seeing Kung Fu Panda at the second run theater. It, it was always fun. Although there were always a lot of projection problems. It's a weird, uh, Oh, I remember another one I saw there becoming Jane. No one remembers that movie. It's a movie where Anne Hathaway Anne played Hathaway, right? Jane yeah. Austen. Yeah. It wasn't a bad movie. I don't remember being a bad movie. I don't remember <laughs> being a great movie either. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I miss going to that theater every week. Um, you came with yeah. me a couple times. We saw Lions for Lambs there. Yeah, what else did we see there? Um, you weren't with me when we saw 310 to Yuma? No. Okay. Yeah, I, I know you saw other stuff with me there. Um, I know you didn't come see Wrist Cutters, A Love Story, which I wanted you to come see with me because Tom Waits was in No, it. I saw it with you. You did see it with me? Yeah. Oh, okay, you did. All right. Yeah, because, you know, hey, Tom Waits is in it. Um, okay. I feel like maybe I did a double feature that day oh, and you right. only came for one of the movies. Maybe right. that's what I was thinking. Anyway. I got my, my weights fixed. I'm good. Yeah. Um, okay. not, not a good movie though. Risk cutters. It, it, it has moments, but it, it has more potential than it actually has uh, good moments. All right. Is it my turn? Yep. All right. This next one, I'm not sure whether to consider it a rewatch or okay. not. Okay. Have you seen it before? Here's the, here's the deal. Back when I was a um, high school, I'm going to say maybe junior, probably, yeah, either sophomore or junior. Um, Let's say I was a junior, so I was 16. Um, One of the seniors and one of the history teachers tried to start a weekly foreign film club. Hey. It didn't last very long. Of course not. Um, And the first movie they showed... Uh, I was late to, and I missed a bunch of, um, and also, like I said, I was 16, so it was 18 years ago. Sure. Uh, and that movie was the seventh seal. Hey, all right. And so, and I haven't watched the seventh seal, so I'd never seen, I had never technically seen the whole thing. Okay. And also, like I said, I was 16. Right. I probably wasn't getting the seventh seal, uh, (laughs) you know, as much as I could have. Right. Um, 
And so I watched either rewatched or for the first time, really yeah. actually sat down and watched the seven seal. You really have and been filling in the gaps lately. That's been something I've been trying to do for a couple of years now, actually. Um, and this one was on the list with an asterisk because it's like, I can technically like, I feel like I'm not lying when I say I've seen it because I've sure. seen most of it <laughs> and I know what happens in it. Yeah. Um, at one point your eyes were pointed at a screen that was showing. It. <laughs> yeah. But probably on VHS. Sure. Um, and so I watched it, you know, in HD, uh, read it from Amazon. That's the way to go. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, I mean, if it's not on movie at least. Sure. Um, exactly. No ads on the movie journal though. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't even know what to say. It's amazing, this movie. I mean, I yeah. feel like I'm not going to, you know, this isn't going to uh, knock anyone's socks off. Everyone right. else has probably seen it more recently than I have. But yeah. it's been 18 years. And uh, um, it has, I, I think there's an idea of Ingmar Bergman that is absolutely there and that this is like a very philosophical, very talky, very existential yeah. type of movie. It's, you know, it's a movie that ruminates on death, but then there's also an idea of Ingmar Bergman that is not fair in that stylistically the seventh seal isn't a slog. It isn't no. like dry. It isn't really, you know, presentationally it isn't even that it isn't even really very challenging. Yeah. It's, 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 it's uh, classical in a way. Yeah. And I mean, it seems classical now, but it was probably a little bit forward for its time in some of the, uh, in some of the framing and in camera movements. I, I can't say that for sure. Not having been a lot, uh, alive in 1956 or whatever. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, I was, found myself surprised. And this obviously isn't something that would have occurred to me when I was 16 and hadn't seen that many art films right. uh, or really that many European films uh, at all. But I was surprised at the, the style of it and how um, uh, relaxed it felt, you know, yeah. um, in, in terms of the, the presentation. Um, and then the other thing I want to mention is that, Obviously, we know Max Van Sydow and uh, I can't remember his name. Who plays Death? Um, uh, yeah, I don't recall. But like, you know, in my memory, because probably more from cultural osmosis than actually when I saw it. Yeah. Like the movie is more of a two-hander between them, but it's not at all. It's an ensemble. Oh, movie, and the ensemble is terrific. The performances all around are so great, especially the guy who plays Max Van Sydow's like right-hand man or his yeah, partner. Squire. Uh, yeah, whatever he is. Yeah. Um, who's just like, uh, you know, a, you know, jaded smarty pants guy. And it's a terrific performance because he's, you see him as kind of like the, you know, he's almost like the medieval, like Peter Venkman, like (laughs) he's constantly like, he's not emotionally, doesn't appear to be emotionally affected by anything. And is constantly making jokes, uh, and, and talking, you know, you know, uh, I hate the phrase verbal diarrhea. There's got to be a better phrase for that. I, I guarantee um, there is a better phrase for that. Uh, but he 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 talks constantly. But you really understand that there is like a, a heart to him mm-hmm. underneath. He's my, he was my favorite character in the movie, and of course the uh, the the jester or whatever the um, yeah. the the funny man uh, who gets his ass kicked at the <laughs> at the tavern. Um, uh, hey there, he's funny man. <laughs> he's great too, but. Um, yeah, holy cow! I uh, I thought yeah. that I I thought that I had seen it. I technically sort of had, and I thought that I knew what Seven Seal was, but uh, I rediscovered it. And it I is, would recommend. I mean, like, I, I feel like there is, and maybe this is just more me. Maybe other film nerds don't have this, but I feel like 
there's a part of me sometimes that falls into the trap of like checking a box once I've seen a movie. And like when I'm presented with the option of like rewatching a movie I know is great or watching something I haven't seen before, I'll choose to watch something I haven't seen before because I feel like I'm getting more out of that. But I don't think that this is, this is proof that that's not true that revisiting something can be just as rewarding as seeing something you haven't seen before. Especially when it's something like that, which is very dense and can just reward multiple viewings. And yeah. And, and by all accounts, and I'm not super familiar with, uh, Bergman. I've seen persona. I've seen the Virgin spring, uh, seven seal. And, uh, by, by all accounts, like, uh, Josh is a big Bergman fan and, that's Seven, the friend of the show, Josh Long. Indeed. Co-host uh, over at more than one lesson, more than one lesson.com. Yeah, I guess he's a co-host. He's one of three rotating co-hosts. So yeah. I feel like he's not the co-host. He's a co-host. Okay. Um, I think it's important. I don't think to, I, I attached an article. I think I just said co-host. I think you're correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Seven Seal is, is considered the most accessible, uh, Bergman film. Um, and, Honestly, I mean, I first saw it in my teenage years, and I remember I was able to f- I was able to follow it, and I knew it was great, and I was really responding to it. Undoubtedly, uh, it's and then I saw it a few years later. Undoubtedly, every time I watch it, I will get something new out of it because of the questions that it's that it's asking. Mm-hmm. You know, I think since I last saw it, I, I think I've lost a number of people and death has become a much more right. relevant thing to my life. Um, as has the, the possibility of loss. And so, yeah, it's, it's a film that I think all, all film fans should see and, uh, and they probably already have, honestly. Um, speaking of, uh, of, of death, um, <laughs> as a character, I mean, oh, okay. Uh, this past weekend, uh, did, I did bar trivia with friend of the show, uh, and editor at large, Scott and I, uh, and his, uh, fiance, Julie, who's also a friend of the website, if not the mm-hmm. show. Um, and there was a death related as again, as a character question, one of the, uh, you've, you've done bar trivia sure. before, you know, one of the rounds is always like a, a matching round mm-hmm. and this, so this case was at, there's like eight, there's, there's always like eight answers and like 10 possible answers. Yeah. Anyway, so the eight things, the clues were like, it would be three actors names. And then at the bottom, there were a bunch of like sort of major characters and like these three actors have all played this character. Hmm. So like, um, and I, I can't remember like for the Joker, they did some like, uh, it, they, they, they really tried to, to trick you cause they did, um, like Mark Hamill was on there sure. as opposed to just the obvious jokers or whatever. But, um, one of them was death and it was, um, I want to say, did, is there something where Ian McKellen played death? Oh um, yeah. Uh, in, um, last action hero, I believe. Okay. He's, so it was Ian McKellen, Brad Pitt and William Sadler. Right. And Scott was like, oh, I know this must be death, but I had, when did William Sadler play death? And I was like, Oh, oh you are friend. missing out. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of filling major holes in your, yeah. in your, in your film history. If you haven't seen Bill and Ted's bogus journey where William Sadler plays death based very much on the seventh seal idea of death. Yeah. Uh, you are missing out. That is a, that is a big, uh, hole you got to fill. So, uh, I have never I, seen it. You've never seen, I know that William Sadler journey. plays death, but, uh, oh, but man. I've never seen the film. Oh man. Uh, it's, yeah, it's obviously, I, I say obviously obvious to me that bogus journey is the superior of the two. Um, 
Bill and Ted movies. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I like Excellent Adventure plenty. Sure. But bogus Excellent Adventure doesn't have the main characters dying at the beginning right. and then going on this like metaphysical trip through heaven and hell. Yeah. Uh, it, it's nowhere near as, as fun as that. It's yeah. It, it's up there with gremlins too. in in terms of like greatest, my favorite sequels ever. Sure. Uh, and there's certainly sequels that are better that I like better than the original. Again, mm-hmm. I like Bill and Ted. I like gremlins. Um, what other sequels are better than the original? Well, I've often had a thing. I mean, people say Godfather, but I, I don't think so. Yeah, and uh, I, I think I the lack the same of way Brando Toy Story makes, too. I think a lot of people like Toy Story two better than Toy Story. I, I'd prefer Toy Story, although I think I'm. I think like Toy, Toy Story, Story three. three the best. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just talking about number like the second ones because I've said. I think I prefer Born Supremacy to Born My uh, Born Identity. Um, uh, I'm a uh, I'm a I'm a Doug Liman fanboy. I think. Yeah. Um, but I've often said that, and that, that maybe it's, you know, a lot of people complain about superhero origin stories. Sure. There are so many examples where the second superhero movie is better than the oh, first sure. one. Dark Knight, uh, well, you disagree, right? right? Dark, Spider-Man, uh, Dark Knight, Spider-Man for sure. Spider-Man yeah. two is prob- probably still my favorite comic book movie yeah. or superhero movie of all time. And X two, which is, um, the best of the X-Men movies that I've seen. Yeah. I haven't seen Logan yet. I know. Yeah. Uh, you thought it was pretty good, but yeah. a lot of people were over the moon about it, but there does seem to be like a trend of like superhero movies are often, but I know a lot of people like, like winter soldier better than the first Avenger. I think, I think I probably do. Yeah. That's one. And arguably Batman returns is better than the first Batman. I would say I like it more. I think I, yeah. I think I like it more as well. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, some people would definitely say that Superman two. Uh, I've never seen Superman two actually. It's pretty good. Uh, yeah, that first like one's Superman. pretty great. I yeah, like Superman's it a lot. A lot of Star Trek two, Wrath of Khan. Oh, most certainly. people would. You know. Yes, that's a big one. Um, Wrath of Khan is so great. People say Empire, but I think I. It's tough. Star Wars versus Empire. I don't know. I need to watch both of them again because I've. When I was a kid, I would have said Jedi, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then I think as I became like a film snob, yeah. Uh, I think I tended towards empire just because it seems, you know, it's more mature, I guess, because it's sure. darker, which is like kind of juvenile to equate yeah. those things. But I think that's where I was, was at for a while, right. but I, I would need to watch them again because I could definitely see myself liking a new hope, uh, uh, better than empire if I revisited it. But empire is great, but it's been, it's been over 20 years since I've seen any of the original trilogy. Yeah. When I was a kid, definitely Jedi because you know, Hey, Jabba the Hutt and the Rancor and the Sarlacc pit. Well, that's all done in a half hour. Uh, and then it's on to a not great story. Um, Ewoks suck, dude. That's from lost. (laughs) Who says that? Uh, Hurley sounds like says a Hurley. Yeah. yeah. And this is, this is a season five thing. So not everyone's going to get that. Not everyone was still, uh, you know, riding for lost in season five, the way I do. Um, but, uh, yeah. All right. So next up, I went to see get out. Oh, good. It was sold out. So I saw the great wall. Um, oh, also <laughs> that, good. I, I, I still haven't seen get out. Uh, I want, to. I, I, I want to, uh, very badly. Um, but, um, but I didn't want to just go home. So I asked, you know, what, what, what's this? I said, what's the seating for get out? And they said, it's very busy. I said, all right, well, how about the great wall? They said, uh, you're, you'll be fine. <laughs> so, um, but by the time, cause it was, it was Saturday night. So by the time the film started, the theater had filled up, it was oh. a smaller theater, but, um, okay. uh, 
Yeah, I, I I read your review afterwards, and I second pretty much everything you said. Oh, is it like the story is fine? The dialogue is often quite silly. Um, the characters are very archetypical, which is okay for yeah. a movie like this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, except that I'm fine with archetypes as long as they don't uh, bland it up a little bit, um, which they do. I feel like a lot of these archetypes are pretty bland and forgettable. Um, I, mean, I think the um, the main sort of four maybe characters, maybe five, okay, yeah, I think um, as much as I am a Willem Dafoe fan, I don't think he's that great in the movie at all. I, right. Um, they, I didn't like, give, they didn't give him anything to work with. I, I liked Matt Damon and Pedro Pascal. I liked um, the the woman who's the Chinese lead. Commander I like her Bain a lot, the yeah. character's name. I forget her name. She's also in Kong Skull Island, apparently. I've got my tickets already. Oh, yeah. Um, and then you've got Andy Lau. Um, and then there's also... I would have liked to see more from him, I guess. Yeah, he did, he did see like the seem like the... I mean, he's... I would say to Americans, he's, I mean, most Americans don't know any of these Chinese actors, right. but if, if there's a Chinese actor in the great wall that Americans are going to know, it's Andy Lau. Yeah. And so it does seem like the, and Andy Lau type of like, yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit more than a cameo, but it is uh, a fairly small role. Yeah. Um, but the other, the young Chinese character, again, very much an archetype, but I think it's a good performance. I do think that, that is, is a good the, performance. The, yeah. the one that everyone thinks is a coward, but Matt Damon sees right. his, his, his bravery in him and he has yeah. a big brave moment, uh, near the end. Uh, I think that's a nice, nice performance. I do think that, uh, the, the monsters, it's a fine design, but it just felt so generic the idea it's like oh there's a queen and um you know if uh we've got our boss here and if we kill the boss we beat the game oh shit it's a movie um but i see that but i think there's cool stuff with the design of like how she communicates with them and also how they protect her is very cool yes and and so unsurprisingly a lot of the action sequences are are a lot of fun and a lot of a lot of the concepts behind the action are fun, if not totally impractical. Um, like that crane squad where it's just like, okay, so that's a, Oh, that's just a suicide. Beat, <laughs> the right? 13th century bungee jumpers. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but the idea of like the blades coming out of the wall, I liked that. Yeah. Um, I like that the crane squad like walks out to the edge of the thing and then turns around and someone tosses them a spear. It's like, yeah, they could have just carried the right. spear out there with them. Right. Also, uh, yeah, what if the crane squad's like, oh, shoot, I missed it. Right. It's like, yeah. oh, well, we're sh- short of spears now. <laughs> so maybe you could drop down and just start throwing punches. Um, but, but there's uh, all kinds of fun ideas. I, I mean, genuinely love when it's when there's the fog and they use those, like, noise arrows. Yeah. And you you hear that very strange, very distinct noise like whistling, coming yeah. uh, at our characters. Stuff like that is very, seems like very Zhang Yimou, like, trying to utilize w- different types of weather to really up the, the mm-hmm. stakes. And so... Uh, and also the... I liked uh, his use of color. Yeah, and, the, the, yeah. the pageantry of this... Uh, of, of this uh, this particular mill, what are they called? The the nameless order. Yeah. Uh, the the pageantry of that is very very late late period Zhang Yimou. Yeah. It I I I enjoyed it for the most part. I don't think it's a, a great movie by any stretch. If the story had been more interesting and if it had felt more vi- more generally. I feel like it either needed to be a lot more serious or a lot less serious. Um, 
for a film like this. If it had been just, if they had just steered right into camp or pulp, I think I'd be a lot happier. Um, okay. but as it is, it, it was a, uh, I'm not sure if I'd go as so far as say it was a visual Marvel, but it was very visually satisfying. Uh, but yeah, the script is fine. All right. Um, I saw a movie that comes out, um, in a month or, or so, uh, that I, you're allowed to talk about it. Yes, I am. Okay. Um, it played at Sundance and it was initially on my list of films to see at Sundance. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I was going to go to one of the P and I screenings, um, that's that's press and industry. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was saying for the listener, uh, you know, they're not necessarily as clued in. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, you, that, you, you really got to spell it out for something. Right, right. <laughs> I like that I'm whispering. Uh, anyway, uh, that show, uh, that show, Magnum P and I was not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this guy who's really superior uh, in um, his attitude towards other people. <laughs> Uh, so I was going to go to the P&I screening the night before, like this movie premiered and the tweets I was reading were pretty much universally negative. And I was mm-hmm. like, I'll see something else instead. And I ended up seeing call me by your name, which ended up being my favorite thing of the festival. So I don't yeah. regret it, but I'm glad I got a, a press screening. Uh, and I'm glad I went to see, uh, a movie called Wilson directed by Craig Johnson, which is based on a Daniel close, uh, oh, okay. graphic novel and, uh, stars Woody Harrelson in the title role, um, as a, uh, I was going to say middle-aged. He's Woody Harrelson aged. Um, crank, I guess, is how you'd describe this guy. He's uh, he's very intelligent, but he's also very set in his ways and very superior. And he has he's the kind of guy who considers himself a people person, probably, but actually has no concept of social boundaries right. uh, whatsoever. He is the kind of guy... Uh, and this is actually what the poster is, which I didn't know when I wrote this in my review. Maybe I'll go ch- change my review uh, if I think to. But he's the kind of guy who will use the urinal that's right next to the only other guy using the urinal, despite there being an entire. That's an actual scene in the movie, and that's exactly who he is. Like, um, and there's other scenes like that. When he's on a train or a bus, he'll go sit next to someone, even though there's lots of empty seats. Hmm. The other person will be like, "There's plenty of empty seats," but he just wants to talk. Like, yeah. And I think. What, it, what what the movie gets at, uh, and I ended up liking it quite a bit. It's not perfect, um, and I think um, uh, Craig Johnson is sometimes is a little too uh, formally rigid um, for what Woody Harrelson is trying to do with the depths of the ca- depths of the character. Uh, like I think Craig Johnson is constantly sort of playing the deadpan joke, um, and that's a lot of what the movie is. But the fact that he can't let loose of that at the moments when right. Harrelson is, is, is showing some real raw emotion, which he does. It's a great performance by Woody Harrelson that I think people would see as a great performance if it were framed better. Hmm. Um, anyway, um, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah. So, um, he's a, he's a crank, he's a curmudgeon. He's, uh, you might describe him as crusty, but benign. Um, but he is the epitome. I think, what the movie is getting at is the epitome of the idea that a cynic is a frustrated ideal or a frustrated optimist. Yeah. I think this is a guy who wants to make connections. He likes people in theory. He wants to try and talk to people and people just keep letting him down yeah. uh, and keep being awful. And he's not doing himself any favors because he can't, he is just constantly saying awful, awful stuff. Yeah. And basically the movie kicks off because uh, his father dies and his only friend uh, played uh, by, um, Brett Gelman, uh, hey, nice. whose wife is played by Marilyn Ricegub. And I don't, you know, this is an early contender or probably fall out of 
contention, but Marilyn Ricecup is an early contender for the Bruce McGill Award of All Best right. Performance under fifteen under fifteen minutes. Um, but uh, so his be- his best friend um, moves away, and so suddenly he finds himself, you know, at this stage in his life with no one, mm-hmm. and so it spurs him on to go look up his ex-wife he's been divorced for 17 years uh and his ex-wife is played by the great laura dern you can't go wrong literally can't go wrong yeah that's um someone who yeah any movie that laura dern in is well when we talk who who was roger ebert talking about harry dean stanton yeah we talked about this recently like you know if harry dean stanton's in a movie at least part of the movie is going to be good yeah i feel the way about laura dern as well um and she ends up being a big part of the movie because he reconnects with her um, what he had always thought when she divorced him, she was pregnant. She moved to California, told him she was getting an abortion. They haven't talked in 17 years. She went through a lot of, uh, drug addiction problems or whatever, and in a sense moved back. Um, and, um, he finds out that she didn't have the abortion. She had the baby, gave it up for adoption. And so he suddenly has this, like, you know, here's a lonely guy and suddenly finds out that he has family he never knew about. Yeah. But he and Laura Dern are both in their own ways, separate, unique ways, uh, complete fuck ups. And so they try and find their daughter. They do find it, but they go they go about it all wrong. Um, and there's a, I don't want to go too much into I mean, I've told enough of the plot um, and I don't want to go into too much of it beyond that. Uh, but it's. Um, I, I wish the movie were would allow itself to be a little warmer because Wilson as a character and Woody Harrelson as an actor deserve that Yeah, uh, for what it's being. But uh, Craig Johnson just, uh, I'm repeating myself here, but he just uh, doesn't seem to want to, to let, let them. There was something else I was going to say about it. Now I've, I've forgotten, um, but it does have a great cast. I mean, I've mentioned a bunch of people already. Woody yeah. Har- Woody Harrelson, Laura, Laura Dern, Brett Gilman, Marilyn Ricecub, um, also, uh, Cheryl Hines, uh, is in it. Um, and, uh, yeah, a bunch of other people. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really good in it and it goes places you don't, uh, wouldn't expect. Now, David, a moment ago, you said crusty, but benign. Uh, what is that from? That's from network. Network is the last movie that I've seen. Uh, really? by a weird coincidence. Did it? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, we watched it in my film history class and, uh, and I was eager to see how I've seen this film many, many times. Um, I could quote a number of the monologues to you. And, uh, and I first saw it when I was 16 and it blew my mind. And then as the more I saw it, the more I realized how brilliant it is. Cause you know, <clears throat> I think when you're younger, you're thinking very much in terms of Howard Beale and only Howard Beale. But as you get, as I got older, I started to realize how brilliant, Faye Dunaway's character is and her relationship with, um, William Holden. Mm-hmm. So, so I was curious to see how the, the kids would, would approach it. Uh, many of them 18, 19. So kind of in that same area as I was. Um, and some people seem to really love it and thought it was just, I think one guy t- uh, today said that it was just operating at such a, at a level that he had never really seen before from a dialogue standpoint and just from a satirical standpoint. Um, and yeah, and I've, again, I've seen it many times. It was great seeing it on the big screen because the, the bridges theater at UCLA seats 300 people. It's a nice big screen. Hmm. It was a beautiful uh, transfer. I think it was a film print. And, um, and yeah, I, I can't say enough great things about network. Um, I do think basically everybody in that film got an Oscar nomination except Robert Duvall and his performance 
is so it's weird to say specific. They're all very specific performances, but he is a guy who, you know, he's the corporate guy who does not necessarily lead with his emotions. He has a very specific idea of what he is looking for. Um, and what success means. And, uh, I don't know. And so you see him when he's angry, you see him when he's excited and there's very little difference. Um, and so, and he's got that wonderful line that, uh, Patty Shayefsky gave him and that he knocks out of the park where he says, we got a big fat, big titted hit. <laughs> and it's, and it's, you know, and it's 1976, Robert Duvall who yeah. just like hits that really hard. And, but everybody, you know, Ned Beatty is marvelous in it. And, and it's just shot in a way that I think, um, you know, I think people would be less inclined to think of Sid, uh, of it as a director's film. You know, it's an actor's film. It's a writer's oh. film. But Sidney Lumet makes very specific choices. Yeah, um, when he goes to close up is strategic. And when he stays far, often very far away from the person delivering this monologue, uh, is also strategic because so many of these characters are just performing, even if yes. they're not officially performing, but they are. Yeah. No question absolutely. About it. That's what I think of when I think of the style of that movie, I think of those, those, um, wide or long, wide shots yeah. that give the, the whatever room or studio or whatever, like the look of like a, a cathedral or some other sort yeah. of sort of major uh, space where someone is talking, but really they're proselytizing or whatever. Yeah. And, and one leads to another, you know, Howard Beale, when they eventually build the set around him being crazy, it actually, they use uh, like a stained glass window type set. Uh, and so then when the time comes and Ned Beatty needs to try to convince this man, well, he knows the iconography he needs to utilize. And so he puts a spotlight on himself and treats it very much like he were a preacher. And so it really is on, on so many levels, a, a fascinating film. And, you know, I'm sure most listeners have seen it, so there's not much else I should say, but I was very happy to see it. And some P some of the kids really responded to it. Some of them notably did not, but, uh, but I still did. And, uh, I'm, you know, this is my show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Robert Duvall is one of those actors. You and I have talked about this off mic that you don't think of people being able to do an impression of them until you see it. Right. And there's the, on the Deadwood, uh, special features. We watched this together. That's right. It was Titus. Well, Titus right? Welliver does a Robert Duvall impression. And it's like, Oh, that's how you do Robert Duvall. That's it. And yeah. now it's like, I guess that must have happened with everyone. Like someone was the first to like, clue into jimmy stewart and now everyone like yeah. knows like a fifth generation jimmy stewart impression yeah. right or ronald reagan or jack nicholson or any of these people uh robert duvall is one that you wouldn't that you don't not a lot of people do robert duvall but titus yeah. Oliver, man it's so good and i'll say this uh on dvd somewhere i got it on netflix 10 years ago when it was a dvd service and you still get dvds from netflix you can I think it's a different, I think it officially does have a different name though. No, they, they, they abandoned that. Not, they, the, not, not the, uh, Quickster, oh, Quickster, not that, uh, somebody, uh, on one of my guests on more than one lesson said that he still has like the disc. I still have one disc and said that I, like if you sign up for it, oh. if you set up a new disc membership then you wind up it directs you to a different website interesting um but anyway uh 
there is a from the seventies. There is a uh, a concert film of Frank Gorshin uh-huh. uh, live. Now, of course, people know Frank Gorshin as the Riddler, as do I. But he was also like the premier impressionist of the day, and it was it's amazing. He does everybody. He does an astonishing Burt Lancaster, mm. uh, but then he also because this was the seventies. So he does the old standards, but then you also see him do Nicholson, but it's, you know, we know what Nicholson is, but this was back when Nicholson was young right. and was like this swaggering type guy, as opposed to, you know, the hair back and right. like the, the smiles and such. He does a, a young Dustin Hoffman because Dustin Hoffman is young at the time. Yeah. And it really oh, is kind awesome. of, kind of awesome to see. But anyway, have you seen the other one that is like that, um, I, I, I watched Saturday Night Live very uh, sporadically in, in recent years, but have you seen Taron Killam's Brad Pitt? No. It's, it's amazing. It's another way. Like, you That's a good one for like, I would never think. You wouldn't think of a way, but once you see it, it's yeah. like, it's a really specific thing that Brad Pitt doesn't always do, but it, yeah. but it's also, I don't want to ruin it for you, but it's also a thing that is like, that nobody else it, does. Once yeah. you see it, it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's Brad Pitt. I will absolutely have to look that up. Um, yeah. He did a weather report on, Weekend update, like as Brad Pitt. We should watch that uh, when we're done here. Absolutely. Um, anyway, uh, all right. A uh, couple one, couple for me. I watched uh, a movie um, from. Uh, I guess it just came out here last year. Uh, came out a couple years ago in France. Uh, it's called In the Shadow of Women. It's um, uh, from veteran French director Philippe Garel, uh, and it's a it's a. You know, I mean, I feel like you and I are broken records. We always talk about how much we love short movies. Yeah. Um, thank God for short movies is what uh, Leonard Maltin said at last year's Turner Classic Movies mm-hmm. Film Festival when he was introducing uh, Law and Order, the um, not the TV show, but the mm-hmm. the, the Western uh, with Walter Houston. Um, uh, in the shadow of women, uh, in the shadow of women is only seventy five minutes long, uh, and it is just proof that you can have a movie that is incredibly specific, but also incredibly powerful and universal. And you can do it with economy and you can make a 75 minute movie that is as devastating and impactful as, uh, as an epic. Um, basically this is a movie about uh, a couple, uh, Pierre and Menon who are, um, documentary filmmakers together. Uh, he starts having an affair with the young intern at the, who works at the film archive, um, and it's an ongoing affair that goes on for months. And then she not knowing, not even knowing about this affair has an affair of her own, but it's a one-time thing. She feels awful about it and tells her husband about it. Mm-hmm. He treats her like shit, can't get over it. Meanwhile, he's still carrying on his affair, yeah. but is being in- completely hypocritical. And the movie is mostly given the name in the shadow of women. It's mostly, you can tell it's mostly from his point of view. Right. And, uh, the the performance uh Stanislav Merhar plays Pierre and Clotilde Corot plays Menon and they're they're amazing and the um uh Lena Pagalm is the I don't know I'm sure if I'm saying that right is the the younger woman that he's having an affair with these three terrific performances that absolutely um uh that are absolutely in, in, integral to the movie but uh so girl focuses on him and doesn't let him off the hook at all for right. his hypocrisy um, and selfishness, but also allows you to see things from his point of view as well. Like allows you to see how he's justifying things to himself or how um, his, like the fact that he's being an asshole doesn't mean the fact that he's hurt hurts mm-hmm. any less. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and so it's an incredibly um, sensitive uh, movie um, that I think is also, you know, I, the thing I'm describing sounds very cynical, I think, about, about love, but mm-hmm. I think it actually is a positive movie. In the end, I felt uh, that it earned some uplift in its uh, portrayal of what it means to be in love with a person or people or whatever. Um, Anyway, In the Shadow of Women, it's great. Okay. Um, And then I saw another movie that I'd wanted to see for a while, uh, for for a year or two, um, directed by Joachim Trier, who's uh, a few years ago made a movie called Oslo, August 31st, that uh, got some attention. But this is uh, his first English-language movie. It's called Louder Than Bombs. Um, Oh, yeah, I've heard good things. uh, Named after the Smiths album, apparently, even though the Smiths... I don't know. Maybe that was a saying before the Smiths named an album that? No. I don't know. But when I think louder than bombs, I think the Smiths. Um, but it has nothing to do with the Smiths. Basically, the the premise of this movie, uh, even though it's not told really... Eh, it's mostly chronological, but it has a lot of flashbacks. The premise is that there's a family uh, where the mother has, two years prior to the events, committed suicide the she was a photojournalist and now a gallery in the in in new york city is going to do an an exhibit of her photos Mm -hmm. and um so the older uh, there's two sons and a father the older son played by jesse eisenberg who's moved away and is uh uh, getting his phd in sociology um comes home to help his father gabriel byrne um go through the the, the the photos and stuff that were left in their mother's like workspace um and get it ready for this gallery meanwhile the younger son the teenage son who was only 12 he was 14 he was only 12 at the time of the uh suicide is not getting along well with his father uh at all um and also doesn't know that it was a suicide but hmm. she committed suicide by car like she drove she right. intentionally drove her car into a semi-truck and and died but as far as this kid knows, because he was 12 at the time, they didn't tell him, uh, it's just an accident. So, um, but you get a lot of flashbacks and a lot of, a whole lot of like, um, I don't want to call them tangents because they end up being a part of the tapestry, but a whole lot like following the kid into his high school life and the crush he has on a girl and then following Jesse Eisenberg into his, um, uh, marriage. Um, and he's a new father, um, and then Gabriel Byrne starts, you know, it's been a couple of years since his wife died. He starts dating again. Amy Ryan plays the, the woman that he's, he's dating. Um, and so it, it has this through, and throughout it all, it has all these flashbacks. So Isabel Huppert plays the mother and hmm. she's, she's in the movie a bunch, even though she's dead the whole right. time in terms of the present time, uh, present timeline, but she's in the movie a bunch. Uh, and David Strathairn also, um, although is it Strathairn or Strathairn? Strathairn is all, is the only thing I've heard. Okay. David Strathairn plays, um, a, a colleague of hers, another photojournalist who's, who's the one putting together this gallery, you know? Um, and so great cast. That's a good just, cast. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's, the movie is very sad, obviously. I mean, I think everything I just described sounds sad and it is a sad yeah. movie about sad people. Um, and it's also capable of some really, profound moments most of these come in the in the tangents and in the um uh there's i guess you'd call it narration but that's not really like there are voiceovers but it's not narration in the terms of telling you what's happening right it's 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 almost like these little like 
bits of flowery prose that different mm-hmm. characters, um, and it won't necessarily be who you think of. Like when the, when the younger son is wondering about, you know, what the car accident was like, that part's being narrated by the girl he has a crush on who barely even know that knows that he exists in the actual world. So there's a lot of, um, uh, abstractions and sort of, uh, ethereal things like that. And the, the profound moments are in, are in that. But I think overall in terms of its look and feel, and it's very, like I said, it seems like tangents. It comes together in a way that seems, I think, almost too calculated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's my problem with the movie uh, uh, in the end. And I think I would mostly, you know, I'd give it probably a B, B minus if I gave letter grades or whatever, um, which I guess I just did. So I guess I do. Um, uh, while I was watching it, there are moments that I was incredible, by, by which I was incredibly moved in the end. I think the whole thing feels a little airless because it's, hmm. you can just see, you, you can see too much of the, uh, filmmaker at work. And if you can see the filmmakers, yeah, the strings putting together. The strings. Yeah. But I don't know if that's how I want to, the movie seems self-conscious, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and I, I don't know that's necessary. I guess that is what you talk about when you say seeing the strings. No. Um, but, uh, it's definitely if you have Amazon Prime, it's free um, to watch on Amazon Prime. So you could. It's definitely worth checking out. There's some fantastic performances. Um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg is an actor that I have. I have still not. It has still not become unremarkable to me how great he is. Hmm. He's. I, I find him to be, always be terrific, and um, also in this case, I mean something that. Uh, I think this is something you expect from a Gabriel Byrne who's been around a long time. Yeah. Jesse Eisenberg is a little younger. Both of them are willing to play these characters as not great people. Like yeah. you understand they're going through some hard shit, but like, you know, Gabriel Burns, you know, not the best dad, even though he probably thinks he is yeah. because he's inside his own head about his wife's death. And, um, Jesse Eisenberg is definitely not the best husband or father at all. Um, be, because he's also like his dad too caught up in his own bullshit. And I think, um, both the actors are um, really uh, commendably willing to play the uglier aspects of their characters. Well, that's a big part of Jesse Eisenberg's career at this point, like between uh-huh. Social Network and The Squid and the Whale and Lex uh, Luthor. Uh, Lex Luthor and uh, <laughs> I didn't see that one, but. Night Moves. And I feel like there's one or two others that I've seen where he just plays like a self obsessed uh, mm. character. But. Um, where the 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 neuroses that he's so good at playing is indicative of just a general self-absorption and that sort of thing. Um, so now, real quick, uh, I've, I remember that there is, in fact, a fourth TV show that I've seen. You've only seen one, right? I mean, I've seen more. I only want to talk about one. Oh, okay. Um, so am I doing one, you do one, and then I do three? Uh, how about you do two right now and then we'll go back and forth in the last two. Okay. So, um, I have spent the last couple of weeks just, uh, blowing through a 30 rock, which I've seen already, but, um, and I started with seasons like six and seven and then I went back to one, uh, and am now in season four. So it's all out of order, but, (laughs) but I'm, uh, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. And, um, and yeah, that show is 
I mean, obviously, obviously every once in a while there's going to be a joke that just is, seems a little, a little clunky or a little bit too obvious, but at the same time, there's just so damn many of them that it's, it's like airplane where they just throw everything at the wall and see, and they see what sticks. But the, the characters are consistent, including the emotional elements of the characters, uh, specifically, uh, Jack and Liz, which is, um, excuse me, Alec Baldwin and, uh, Tina Fey, uh, their, their friendship is something that's, that's very special and that you eventually see the two of them very, uh, organically, uh, draw closer to one another. Um, and even though they are diametrically opposed, uh, politically and just gen- and philosophically and financially, um, getting closer to each other means changing a little bit, but never changing who they are because part of their friendship means that they don't demand that the other person change who they are. It's really, mm-hmm. really interesting and very touching. And, uh, and it's interesting to see Tina Fey become a better actress. Um, cause early on she, there are a couple of moments where I was like, Oh wow, she did not pull that off. Uh, but by season two and three and certainly four and, and on, uh, on after that, um, she is able to pull off ridiculous, uh, things and do it a hundred percent. And, uh, and Alec Baldwin obviously is a national treasure, uh, on that show and his ability to pause and then deliver the punchline in a, in a very quick and seemingly dismissive way is something that I can't think of really many other actors that could do that. Like the one that I think of is when he's, uh, he's talking about Reaganing. Oh yeah. Which is a great episode that, where, Oh my God. The, yeah. I, the idea that episode is, has the, um, that's when they're trying to do the Tracy Morgan commercial in yeah. one shot. <laughs> and it finally yeah. comes to me. He's like shirt on or off Yeah, on good note. Everyone's safely back to one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, it's the safely that makes it funny to me, uh, that suddenly he's kind of concerned with people. Uh, but that's, yeah. And so the idea of Reaganing is you go 24 hours without making a single mistake. And in fact, you knock it out of the park. And as Alec Baldwin explains it, he's, cause he's several hours in and he's doing pretty good. And so he, he thinks he's going to be able to, to Reagan, uh, this day. And so there comes a moment when he's, he explains what it is and he says, only three people have done it. Jack Welch, Lee Iacocca and no judgment. Saddam Hussein. And just, and the way he just rushes through his Saddam Hussein, like there's a little bit of like, uh, of shame as he says mm-hmm. it. And it's just a stuff like that is so brilliant. And then, when he uh, gets in a gets in a fight with he he's he's in a feud with um, Chloe Grace Moretz, who is the granddaughter of right. the boss yes. of the company, and she <clears throat> she manipulates Jack by playing on his uh, his love of ocean, his childhood love of oceanography, and then when he finally realizes what she's done, he says, "How on earth could you you know could you use oceanography like that?" And then she says. Uh, <laughs> She says, uh, oceanography is for, for tools. And he says, he's like, no, oceanography is for winners. You're for tools. <laughs> it's, just, it's, uh, it's, man, that show's funny. Yeah. Um, most underrated, uh, recurring or I don't know, maybe he's not underrated, but Dean Winters, uh, oh, is, hell yes. is so, so funny. Hell yes. Um, but then I also, 
one of my favorite jokes in the history of 30 rock. And this is a, this is a joke structure that I love, yeah. which is like blah, 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 blah. And then complete left turn, like yeah. seeming like, you know where it's going to go mm-hmm. and then completely making left turn. And I think it's Wayne Brady's character. <laughs> yeah. Who is a partner at the law firm <coughs> of Dewey, Cheatham and Livingston. <laughs> Oh, damn. <laughs> that reminds me of a joke on The Good Place this season that I laughed so hard at that like I had to pause it because I was annoying my wife and she was like, I'm trying yeah. to watch the next scene, but I couldn't yeah. stop laughing at this joke. And the character Tahani says she's good at moderating. Like one time she had to moderate an argument that her friends, uh, baby, posh, sporty, and scary were having with her other friend, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's that is yes, that is a, a a joke that I respond to, and it just uh, and so much of so much of uh, the Jack character fits into one of my favorite comedy things, which is you have a very official sounding voice or an, a very official sounding person say ridiculous yes, things, yeah. um, and that's um, so much of his character. Can I tell you? I know we need to move on, but can I tell you the single greatest joke in the history of Modern Family? Okay. So there's an episode where they go to Australia and this is, they actually went and shot in Australia, which is what happens when you have a successful sitcom on ABC. Apparently they send you to Australia. And, um, the, the storyline for Julie Bowen's character, Claire, is that she's got her head in her work. She's got a mm-hmm. laptop with her everywhere they go. Cause she's preparing this presentation. When she gets back, she has to give this presentation. Yeah. And you know, her family is saying like, you know, let it go for a little bit. And she's like, I can't let it go. This is my baby. You know, this is my idea. This is my baby. Right. She keeps hitting. This is my baby over and over again. Right. I, th- I think you've okay. told this to me before, but now right. I can't remember the punch. And then on one, one day on their Australian trip, they're on like a, an outback tour and they mm-hmm. start, they stop under these like tents for lunch, these picnic tables. Right. She's working at the picnic table, working on her, her, her baby. You know, uh, she gets up to go to the table to get some food. A dingo comes out of nowhere. Obviously grabs the computer and runs off and she says a wild dog took my laptop (laughs) 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 which is to me it's it's 20 minutes of setup yeah to not follow through on what you're setting up that is so that is my favorite type of joke for some reason man (laughs) comedy's pretty great yeah all right uh what's your second show uh, so I watched this in my TV history class. Uh, we watched an episode of Lost. Oh, uh, which one? Uh, Locke's first real episode. You know, don't tell me what I can't do and that sort of thing. Wait, when, Walkabout? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, um, a, that's an all-timer. Yeah, and it's... Because it's the one where you find out. It's, it's like the fifth episode, I think. Yeah, it's probably fifth or sixth. Uh, and it's the, it's where you find out that he couldn't walk yes. w- before, before the Island. Yeah, it really is. Uh, you know, I hadn't seen lost in a while. Do you know, I learned this from the commentary. Okay. Do you know what the writers wanted to name that episode instead of walkabout? Because you find out that he was an office worker, Lord That's of the it. files. Uh. <laughs> I would have enjoyed that. Yeah, I guess I like, I like a good pun. All right. Um, yeah, it's I haven't seen Lost in a while and man, you watch that first season and it is it is like banging on all cylinders. Like it really just because that is a lock centric episode, but you see plenty of other character developments as well and you really see it's a strong Jack episode as well because he is 
full-on reluctant leader. He does not want to do this because mm-hmm. this is the one where they're going to burn the fuselage and they're going to have sort of a memorial service. Oh, right. And Claire wants him to do it, and he is not going to do it. And he really digs in his heels. And, um, and it's just a really, really well-crafted episode. And um, they're still a little clunky on delivering exposition, but the actors and the ensemble nature really works. And the one thing that I will say is, uh, and I know that, well, Hey, you know, with lost, the Island, uh, attracts, uh, the right people to it, mm-hmm. you know, but at the same time, I had this thought of, Oh, you know, what's good about certain characters being criminals is you can give them, uh, talents that nobody in the world has or very few people in the world has uh, actually has and be like, well, they're criminals, you know, they know weird things uh-huh. like the number of people on that plane that are able to track <laughs> other human beings, uh, is I'd say in the, there's probably like 50 people in the world that can actually track to the degree that lost needs them to. And three of them are on that plane. Yeah. And, you know, Locke, Locke, Saeed, and Kate. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Saeed's a soldier. Okay. Locke has sort of devoted himself to that. Okay. And then Kate, as you know, not a big fan of Kate, but she is just this all purpose thing that the, if the writers need someone, it was was like her dad took her hunting when she was young, something like that. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, I, 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 cause I want to make excuses that that's like part of her story that she was close with her dad, which is why sure. her mom marrying the stepdad that she did, you know, was such a devastating right. part of her life. So I want to make excuses for lost because I love that's the show fine. so much, but you know, my dad took me fishing and took me to baseball games and well, that's why I didn't you retain have, any uh, of that perfect knuckleball, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I use to knock fish unconscious and then I just snatch them out of the water. All right. Um, my turn. Yes. Okay. So then my only TV show I wanted to mention was the last man on earth, which came back from its winter mm. hiatus. And it did, uh, even though it ended on definitely a, a bit of a cliffhanger with where one of the main cast members might not be alive anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did the thing that the show was done before, which is come back from a break, uh, with an episode that introduces a new character and doesn't include any of the main cast whatsoever. Hmm. Uh, they did it with Jason Sudeikis, uh, right. I guess like a year ago. Uh, this is, this is even different. Cause like we knew that Jason Sudeikis character was up there before. Right. This is a completely new character played by Kristen Wiig. And it also, it's sort of like speaking of lost, it has sort of a, um, the other 48 days, uh, feel to it. Do you know that yeah, episode yeah. from season two? Um, where it, is the first time we've, you know, we've had plenty of flashbacks, uh, on last man on earth or or some flashbacks, but this is the first time we've flashed back to when the virus was first hitting. And so Hmm. we get, uh, Kristen Wiig is a character who's a, uh, a wealthy woman who, you know, um, runs a charity for, um, dog hip dysplasia. Um, and the opening sequence, she's holding a charity event at her large, uh, large home, um, making very bad jokes. She makes a bunch of bad jokes. I can't remember any of them. And then cut to her arch rival. Who's in the crowd played by Laura Dern. I had a great Laura Dern week. Nice. Um, and, uh, uh, Laura Dern, uh, speaks up because yeah, um, Kristen Wiig says something about like K- 
canine entity. And Laura Dern's like, that's not a word. <laughs> and then she's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and she's like, oh, that's, that's not a word. And then like Kristen Wiig tries to play it off. Like, because Laura Dern's character has cats instead of dogs, mm. you know, and says, uh, what, what would she know? She's, she's a cat lover. And Laura Dern's character's name is Catherine. And she says, well, my name is Cat, so I think my husband Robert is the real cat lover, and the entire the, the audience loves this one, and so it's just more salt in the wound for Kristen Wiig's character. It's a great scene. I'm getting way sidetracked. That's not what this is about. What happens is one of the guests starts like uh, coughing up blood and collapsing at hmm. this charity thing, and so we see then the rest of the uh, really only the first act, um, or maybe part of the second act, is tracking the progress of the of the virus. Um, uh, and there's a great, um, uh, order of, uh, presidential succession joke, you know, because Kristen Wiig is sure that they, as people of means should have access to some sort of vaccine. And she's like, what you're telling me the president doesn't have a vaccine for this. And it cuts them watching the news. Like, uh, president Pence, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, has passed away. And then it's like a montage of president Tillerson, president Mnuchin, yeah. president Betsy DeVos. <laughs> um, it's very funny. Uh, little, little bit. Um, uh, but then she ends up in the sort of, um, I guess, a, a shelter, uh, alone spends three years living alone with her dog in this, uh, posh, posh shelter for rich people. Uh, anyway, and then it goes on from there. Uh, it eventually does kind of overlap with uh, the story we've already seen. Um, but it was um, it, it, it was re- it was really good. Kristen Wiig is uh, a, a genius. Uh, I would watch her in anything pretty much, uh, same as Laura Dern. So um, it, it was a great way to get back into back into the show. And also, it was. Um, I feel like I'm kind of paraphrasing reviews I've read, so I don't like. I want to be original here, but the, this is, it's good. It, it is kind of a reminder of what the show is in a way. Yeah. Even though it's about not, it's about different characters. It goes back to that premise of the title, even though this is a woman in this case, like the last minute of this, it's, it's the, the, the premise of the, of isolation right. and how awful that is for a person, even though it's funny while it, while it does it. Um, you know, the, there's the, the montage of her three years living in the, um, um, uh, uh, in the, in the bunker or whatever you, you see her like just laying and she like, it was someone else's bunker bunker. So it's not even stocked with her stuff. She finds like a zither mm-hmm. and just starts like plucking at it. And then it cuts to like three years later and she's like playing this beautiful song. And then yeah. the whole montage is set to this beautiful zither song that she's nice. playing. Um, but it's, so it's funny, but it's also about like, uh, yeah, what would you do if you were alone for three years? Uh, and how crazy would you go? And how painful uh, would it be? Uh, it was it was a really really great episode. Uh, it's called Got Milk, which makes sense if you've seen the episode. Fair I didn't talk about the milk part. Anyway, all right. So next for me is what? Now I don't actually know what episode this is, but if I had to guess, I would say it is the second or third episode of Battlestar Galactica because I saw the pilot. And I think this is the episode after that where okay. it's the 33 minutes, you know, oh, where okay. the, the Cylons have attacked already. Um, yeah. And it's just called 33, 33. Okay. Um, um, yeah, that makes sense. And, uh, it is great. And it's, well, it's so 
Battlestar like it's weird the seasons of Battlestar Galactica. Okay. Because Battlestar Galactica was a mini series right. first that they then I, I think it was kind of like a backdoor mini series. They're like, if this works, we'll make a show out of this. Yeah. But it's a mini series. So technically I think thirty three is the first episode of the first season. Okay. But it's not. Like the first season is the miniseries. Right. So it's like it's it's the first episode that was produced after the miniseries. Okay. Uh yeah, and so that's because I remember thinking, like, I'm not going to... When when my instructor said that we were going to watch Battlestar Galactica, I had this thought of, oh, man, I'm not going to be able to follow this. And sure enough, we picked up where I left off. Mm-hmm. So I was able to follow pretty well. And, yeah, they just do such a such a great job of showing people just getting more and more tired. Um, and just this idea of the the cruelty of the Cylons, the idea that maybe they've they've picked just this arbitrary amount of time, but not very long, but also not too short mm-hmm. so that people it's like 33 minutes. That's enough time to feel a little bit relaxed. And if you're exhausted to maybe start to even drift off, but not enough that once it's time to get back into, right. get back into action, you know, that, uh, that it doesn't, you know, jar you awake right. and all that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I really loved it. I think they it ends on a really nice note with Mary McDonald where it's she keeps marking the various people they keep losing uh over the oh, course right, of these yeah. jumps and then her assistant says you can we can change the board but we'll be adding one cuz somebody had a baby and it's just a really it's a really nice moment and yeah. it, it's a moment of of wary hope um but then the character of uh gaius uh baltar Mm -hmm. is his name um his story is really interesting and just i don't know i I really it really pulled me in uh, enough that when i have the time and i've got a spring break coming up i might uh make my way uh through it because it really yeah you're hitting the highlights you watched one of the best lost episodes and one of the best battle galactic episodes yeah um so i'm i'm very excited to have to have watched it um and then lastly, I last night was the the season premiere of Survivor. Oh. It was a two hour episode, two vote offs, oh. uh, both of them big power players. Uh, and it would appear that so this is an all star season. And so it's all Aren't they all at this point. No, uh, the last few seasons have been have been uh, newbies. newbies. Um, but this one, it's called Survivor Game Changers, which is not true. Maybe. 12 of the 20 are people that sort of did something amazing their season and the the rest, they just filled in with people that, uh, uh were available. I don't know. Um, it's, right. it, they do that sometimes and it's very frustrating, but nonetheless, uh, it's interesting to see the people that, that didn't do amazing things. It's always fun to see people learn and be like, okay, I did this last time. I definitely can't do that this time. And just to see people who tried to do big things la- last time make the conscious decision to fade into the background for a while. Hmm. Um, and one thing that's fascinating, there's this woman, Sandra. She's the only person to have won twice. And she's back. And the way she won twice was by kind of adopting this attitude of, Anybody but me. I, I don't have alliances, uh, or at least not long-lasting alliances. As long as they're not writing my name down, I'll write down whoever I need to. And she just kind of goes with the flow, and nobody ever looks at her and sees that she's the threat. Well, she's won twice now. She's a threat. Mm-hmm. You would think 
she's the first person they vote off because she thrives on just making it to the end while the bigger threats get cut down. And then before you know it, Oh, son of a bitch, we kept meaning to vote her off and now we can't, uh, two votes in, she's still there. And because once again, she's standing back a little bit, not as much as she used to, but like she's standing back and letting people kind of cut their own throats. And I never really liked her as a winner. I never really liked her strategy, but if she's able to do it again this season, then she's uh, the undisputed best player of survivor ever because she's able to she's able to make convince people that what they're seeing is not what they're seeing Mm. and what they know is not what they know. Um, but then it's, there's also some fun editing. One of my favorite guys from a couple seasons ago, um, is, uh, this guy, he's, you know, he's middle-aged. He's, uh, he's a really fun screen presence and, and, and he also gives really good confessionals and such. And so you have these two power players going after each other. And one of them describes, it's like, it's like, Oh, it's frustrating. This is, it's like, I just feel like I'm in hell. And then it cuts to this other guy, the guy I'm talking about, Jeff Varner. And it cuts to his confession saying like, I am in heaven right now. (laughs) He goes, these two people are going after each other. That's great for me. No one's coming after me. And so, uh, you get some, some good, uh, excuse me, you get, you've got some good, you know, uh, narrators and they're, they're obviously not actual narrators, but right. the, they're the people that the editors come back to over and over because they give good sound bites and they sum up what's happening very clearly. And so I'm, I was a little iffy about this cast cause there's not a lot of people I love, but I'm already excited again. And you're going to be talking about it on worth playing for. Uh, I believe so this, this week, uh, Jen was out of town, so we weren't able to record, but I think we're going to, uh, cover this season. Okay. So...